Well, for our message today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. If you have your pew Bibles, that's on page 45. Otherwise, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. You find your way there. To be continued. How do you react when you hear those words? To be continued. When you hear them or maybe you read them at the end of a book or you see them at the end of a movie. There's an anticipation, right? There's an excitement. There's a longing for something that is yet to come. Maybe you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Maybe there's an impatience, I have to wait another two years for the next movie to come out? What? The story isn't finished. Star Wars fans, at the end of The Force Awakens, Rey and Chewbacca are on their way to go find Luke, and she climbs up the hill and stands there with the lightsaber, and then it pans out, and what's going to happen, right? Two more years of anticipation of the to be continued. And then the last Jedi came and ruined everything forever and made us more confused. But that's another story for another day. But we just wrapped up the book of Genesis last week after nine months looking at the story of creation, of the fall, of God's promises to the patriarchs. And this whole long journey of all these generations ended with the words about Joseph. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. A little anticlimactic, right? I think there needed to be a to be continued at the end of the book of Genesis. But there was a lot more behind that story, wasn't there? Just right before that, Joseph and his brothers are reconciled to one another after many years of of drama and and family stuff going on. As far as we know, really the last 50 years of Joseph's life, he lived at peace with his brothers. You remember what he said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order that many should be kept alive. And last week we asked the question, Will God keep his promises? Will God keep his promises to his people? Joseph is in a coffin in Egypt. What? What next? What's going to happen? Well, we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 1 to see if we get an answer to our question. Uh, If you're like, oh no, are we going to preach through the whole book of Exodus now? No, we're not. This is just one one message in Exodus just to see how the story continues. Uh, We're going to be going to 1 John next. But hopefully one day we will come back uh, to Exodus. But wanted to give you kind of a picture of how this story continues. Let's go to God's word. I'll read all of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us. It is a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Lord. May we be changed this morning by your word. May we see how you keep your promises to your people, how you are our deliverer, how you are the one that is with us always. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter begins with a recap of the story of the patriarchs, the 12 sons of Israel who made made their way down into Egypt where they were saved from the famine, saved by the hand of the brother whom they tried to kill, and ultimately saved by the God who orchestrated all of these events, even the evil attempt to kill Joseph and then selling them into slavery in order that many people would be kept alive. We must keep this in mind as we turn here to the book of Exodus. As we go from Joseph in a coffin in Egypt to what is going to happen now to God's people. It is the question of deliverance and salvation that is continually pushed to the forefront here in the book of Exodus. The sons are all listed. We're told in verse 6 that Joseph and his brothers and that entire generation died. Then at the beginning of verse 7, we have one of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They rebelled against God. But God gave them a promise of one of their future descendants who would crush 
the serpent's head. God promised Abraham descendants like the sand of the seashore on the seashore. But Abraham took matters into his own hands. But God was still faithful to his promise and still gave him his promised son by Sarah. Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from Esau. But God pursued Jacob. He wrestled him to the ground. He was with him. He kept his promises and was gracious to him. Joseph's brothers tried to kill him, but God was with him. He was thrown into prison unjustly, but God was with him. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to the patriarchs. He actually made it in the garden to Adam, right? Be fruitful and multiply was the command. Then he made the promise to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. Then to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph and all his brothers are dead. That whole generation is dead. It looks like what's going to happen now? God is going to keep his promises. God is going to do what he promised to do generations ago, many generations ago. But this creates a serious threat to the peace and stability in Egypt, where Pharaoh was viewed as the incarnation of an Egyptian god. How is the establishment going to react when allegiance is challenged? What are they going to do? We continue on. Starting in verse 8, we're told that there's a new king in town, a king that doesn't know Joseph. What a picture of how fleeting and how fragile the security of this world is. One day, Joseph is number two in command. Next, he's forgotten. The next person rises to power, who's Joseph, right? What a great reminder that our hope is not in human kings, not in human rulers, it's not in political alliances. But if we just have the right party in power, right? If we just have the right judges, everything will be okay. So we change a few policies for a few years, and then a new regime comes in, and it all changes. And this game of cat and mouse continues. Please hear me here. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't care about policies and politics. I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in fighting for certain things. We absolutely should be. But I am saying that we, we ought to read this story and be mindful of the reality of the world that we live in. Things can change just like that. And we shouldn't be surprised And we shouldn't put our hope in changing the world through these kinds of systems. We shouldn't put our hope in in freedom and deliverance coming from the world and its systems. We have a king who will never, ever forget us. A king who will never die. A king who will never have to be replaced by the next king. 
His rule and his reign will never come to an end. So when the world deals shrewdly with God's people, when there's a fear of Christian influence in our culture, don't be surprised when there's some type of retaliation. I love verse 12 here. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. This word here, oppressed, it's the same word that was used in Genesis 15, which if you've been here, you've heard me talking about this over and over and over. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham, he said, your descendants will be sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years, and they will be afflicted. It's the same word that's used here for oppressed. So what's happening right here is God fulfilling his promises that he gave to Abraham. That Abraham's descendants would be afflicted and oppressed in a foreign land. I mean, you might read this and be like, man, this really stinks for God's people. But this is the fulfillment of his promises. And the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. The more they spread abroad. And this is really the story of church history in many ways. Now, we obviously see that things ebb and flow in the early church under Nero and other Roman emperors, the church actually grew and scattered because of persecution. People were being murdered for being Christians, and the church grew because of it. In communist China in the 50s and 60s, under communist rule, the church was forced underground. And as missionaries were kicked out and local pastors and priests were murdered, I think a lot of people thought, oh no, this is, this is the end of Christianity in China, right? But it wasn't. The church went underground and it exploded. If you're following the news today in China, they're kind of trying to do the same thing they did when the communists first took over. They're trying to root out Christianity. They're trying to root out Christian missionaries because it's a threat to their harmonious society idea. Because the believers there, they won't bow down to the system. They won't bow down to the government. They'll bow the knee to Jesus. There's a great article last week on the Gospel Coalition website called The Countries Where It's Most Dangerous to Be a Christian in 2019. Uh, we posted this last night on our Facebook page. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and this is, uh, you can go there and get the link or you can just search for it on the Gospel Coalition website. But uh, there's an organization called Open Doors USA, and they've been reporting since the early 90s on persecution that happens all over the world. There's a world watch list, and in the 2019 reporting period, in the top 50 countries that were listed, a total of 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 2,635 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. On average, that's 11 Christians killed every day for their faith in the world in, 2000, well, in 2018. <clears throat> the top three countries, the countries we prayed for earlier, North Korea, under communist oppression, estimated that there's 300,000 Christians in North Korea. Afghanistan, under Islamic oppression, 
estimated that there are thousands of Christians. Somalia, under Islamic oppression. It's estimated that there are a few hundred Christians in the entire country of Somalia. A country with 15 and a half million people. That's almost three times the population of Wisconsin. And there are Christians in the hundreds. We have churches in our city this morning where there are hundreds of people gathering to worship. And in a country of 15 and a half million today, there are hundreds of Christians. What would compel someone in one of those countries to continue to cling to Jesus in the face of daily threats against their lives? Do you think Jesus might be enough when he's all that you have? How do you think they relate to this story of oppression of God's people here in Exodus chapter 1? And this isn't some kind of guilt trip on us. We sit here comfortably today, and it's not the comfort that I want to poke my finger at. It's that we don't realize that we have the same need for deliverance and salvation that they have. Because our greatest problem and their greatest problem, it's not some political regime. It's not policies that don't allow us to pray in school. It's not threats to our rights and freedoms. I'm not trying to minimize those things, but those are kind of first world problems, right? Our greatest problem is ourselves. It's our own sin that separates us from a holy God, that destroys family relationships, that destroys other relationships, that causes political leaders to fight for power and to oppress and enslave their own people. So before we start pointing fingers at others like communist governments and Islamic regimes, we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and look at ourselves. This doesn't mean that we don't point out the wickedness and we don't point out the godlessness that is happening because we should and because Exodus does. We can't read this last part of this chapter and not call it pure evil and wickedness. Pharaoh is afraid that the people are multiplying too quickly so he infiltrates the ranks of the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua here commands them to kill all the boys, all the Hebrew boys, kill them after they're born. We don't know what the terms were. Uh, We don't know, you know, if Pharaoh maybe said, if you do this, I'll, you know, give you a mansion to live in, or maybe it was just, "I'll, I'll keep you alive, I won't kill you, right? But they feared God, and they disobeyed Pharaoh's command. They actually lied to Pharaoh. Um, I was telling one of the brothers here yesterday at Presbytery that I was preaching on this passage today. He goes, oh, are you going to tell all the kids it's okay to lie? I said, well, yeah, not exactly. But um, this is, you know, for what it's worth, this is an instance where lying was 
honoring to God, right? It was the right thing to do. It kept many people alive. Now, obviously, we know we shouldn't tell lies, but there are instances where fearing God and honoring God may, you may be in a position, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail too much, but, you know, not everything is as black and white as we always want to make it, okay? There are instances where things need to be done, and I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) But Pharaoh comes then, he questions these Hebrew women, uh, he questions Shifra and Pua, and they say the Hebrew women, they, they give birth very quickly before the midwives can get there. That's the lie that they tell. They honor God, and God deals well with them. In verse 20, we have a repeat of verse 7, that they're multiplied and they grow very strong. Then God gives the midwives themselves their own families. Pharaoh obviously catches on to what's happening. Uh, He sees that they're continuing to multiply. So he chooses a more ruthless tactic. First, he tried this subversive method that he thought he could get away with, that he thought he could get away with without blood on his hands or blood on the hands of his people, right? It was the the Hebrews were going to be killing their own people, and that would look like they just are the ones with the problems. But now he is desperate. He tells his own people, go and kill all the Hebrew boys. Any that you see, kill them. Wipe them out. And there's nothing new under the sun over the last 3,000 years. State-instituted killing of babies is still commonplace. I shared a stat earlier that 11 Christians are killed every day in the world for their faith. That pales in comparison to 100 and 25,000 abortions that happen every day in the world. 125,000. That's the city of Oshkosh being murdered twice in a day. The entire state of Wisconsin being wiped out in 45 days. It's the whole U.S. population being wiped out in seven years. I'm not trying to make some political statement. I'm not trying to make some reactionary statement because I don't think this is a political issue. It's fundamentally a moral issue. When unborn or just born children are viewed as a threat or an inconvenience, it reveals the darkness of the human condition. It reveals the depth of the sin and depravity that is in this world. I said earlier that the, the greatest word, I think, in the Bible is, is but, and I want to repeat that. But there is hope for those who have been affected by this rejection of God's blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. This is not the unforgivable sin. And the hope that we have is pictured here in salvation coming from the two most unlikely sources, these two Hebrew midwives who were probably at the lowest rung of the social ladder. They trusted God and they risked their own lives so that others might be saved. And this sets us up very nicely for Exodus chapter 2, where we're introduced to Moses 
the deliverer of God's people, who was not thrown in the river to drown by the grace of God, but he was placed in a basket in the river, in an ark, if you will. He was delivered. Where? Into Pharaoh's own house, right? Pharaoh's daughter. And he would become the deliverer of God's people. And all of these are pictures of salvation and deliverance from Noah early on in Genesis, building the ark to save from the waters of judgment, to Joseph saving the world from famine, to Shifra and Pua saving the Hebrew boys from death, to Moses delivering the people in Exodus. Even as we had the baptism, that water is a picture of judgment in a way. It's a picture of God's judgment and God saving us through the water. But all of these deliverers in the Old Testament, they're all foreshadows and types. They all point us forward to the deliverer. They are all to-be-continued stories. The deliverer came after years of waiting by God's people. And his situation wasn't that much different than the situation in Exodus chapter 1. His people were being oppressed by the Romans. And many of them were hoping for political deliverance. When Herod learned about Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2, he had all the male children under two years in the region of Bethlehem murdered. But Joseph and Mary were warned and they escaped to Egypt with Joseph and they, re- they remained there until Herod died. Kind of love that irony there with the death of Herod and the death of Pharaoh and how God used the, the death of these kings kind of in reverse ways there. But God delivered our deliverer from death so that he could live in our place so that he could obey the law fully on our behalf and that he could die in our place. But death could not hold him. God delivered him from the grave and he rose again on the third day conquering death so that we might live forever. So that his people could stand in the face of even the worst type of oppression and say to live is Christ And to die is gain. To proclaim to the watching world that our hope is not in deliverance from the pain and the suffering of this world that so many people falsely want to try and offer us. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you're looking for deliverance. I don't know where where you're looking for salvation. Maybe it's in the ways of the world. Maybe it's in self-improvement just trying to be a better version of yourself. I think, is anyone else hearing that? Like, be a better you is like every, like, that's all I hear now. Like, that must be the 2019, like, secular theme. Like, become a better you. I mean, you can try that, right? Or you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and try self-denial, right? And you can just say, I'm just going to try really hard. Uh, I'm going to not do all these things. But those things cannot save you from the power and the death grip of sin. No amount of self-anything 
can save you from sin, can save you from yourself. Christ alone can save you. He's the only hope that we have to be saved from this type of oppression, to be saved from the oppression of sin, to be saved from ourselves and the way we oppress ourselves. Look to him. Run to him. Cling to him. Turn from your sin and be saved. For Christians who have already done that, our hope is not in living a better life. Our hope is in dying and rising again. As we read our Deliverer's words in our New Testament reading, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us follow and serve the one who laid down his life for us. Let's pray. God, may we look to you alone for deliverance. May we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, where our perfect, sinless Savior was sacrificed in our place, where his body was broken and his blood was poured out, so that we might be saved, so that we might have forgiveness of sins, and that we might have eternal life. I thank you for this picture that we've just seen of the deliverance of your people, but how it was incomplete, how it was a to-be-continued story, and how we've seen the deliverance at the cross. And I thank you for the to-be-continued element of the story that still continues as we press on day in and day out, as we fight the good fight, as we walk with Jesus in this world. God, give us the strength to live for you, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be salt and light in this sin-sick world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.